With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday Fallout for Season 14, Reply Brief. Episode 4.5. Bob broke down the second half of the prosecutor's episode 4 and through and thoroughly examined the call logs and the facts from the night in question. Today, it's just Bob and I while Janet's on assignment. But before we get into that, Bob, will you have any housekeeping? Uh, no, just that uh, we're sad Janet couldn't be here. She just she just had a very, very, very busy week. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Janet runs, um, she's one of the co-founders of Sketchfest in San Francisco every year. It's a massive, huge fest, and she has a ton of work to do. And uh, we got a very distressing series of text messages from her today that she was trying to figure out how to fit everything in. And uh, we told her to go ahead and uh, go off on assignment today. Zach and I got it. The old Bob and Weave days. Old Bob and Weave. So it's just the two of us. As far as any housekeeping goes, just want to let you guys know that our patrons that are waiting for t-shirts, we are moving in that direction. Listener and patron Daniel Townsend has taken possession of all the shirts. She has taken possession of the Patreon account where she can check all the inventory so that she can get all that squared away and get those shipped out. So those should be coming very soon. I know some of you, I just got a message the other day from somebody about a hat. I haven't checked the message. I saw it come up, but I haven't checked them. So if you were the person that sent that, uh, because I don't want to mess Danielle up on her end, but uh, I have the hats. I'm going to try to get those out this week. We're making strides to get everybody, all that stuff caught up for everybody that's owed merch. Once that's caught up, I am going to do a limited merch sale for the remaining. They left. I bought way too many shirts for Obsessed Fest. And so we're going to sell what we have left of those. And if those shirts are popular, we may do another run of them. But these are shirts that they're black shirts with white print that says, Ask me how I know Adnan is innocent. So uh, let me know in the comments on social media and stuff and on the episode if that's something you'd be interested in. If you are, then I'm going to go ahead and get those inventoried and get them up on our website for sale. Other than that, I think we're we're good to go. And uh, in this one, so Zach and I talked a little bit before we came in here. Which and, we probably shouldn't have, but we did. Well, I think it was good because basically Zach was like, can you tell me what the basic story is? Yeah. Uh, because he doesn't know kind of what he's what he's listening for. So I kind of went through with him. You know, the basics are like, like, like he doesn't know, like, like what the state's theory of the case is. So I apologize to all the listeners that are probably like screaming at their headphones or their phones or however you're listening to this, because I'm learning this case through a podcast that's about a podcast that's about a different podcast. (laughs) And I'm trying to pick it all up. But luckily, I have Bob here to help me out. Yeah. So with that said, now that you you, you heard this episode, you, you've heard the, the prosecutors part four mm-hmm. and you have heard now my breakdown of the times. So did, what were your takeaways before we get into the listener questions? So before we even get started, I I love this episode, Bob. This felt like old truth and justice to me where you really got into the facts. I know I'm not the only one, but sometimes it's very hard for me to sit and listen to testimony or listen. You know, the last case that we did, the Luke Mitchell case. It was interesting, but it was all hearsay. So to really dig into the nuts and bolts and just go piece by piece of evidence really reminded me how much I love this process and this show. So not to toot your horn. I shouldn't have said that because I'm not tooting your horn. Fuck Bob. (laughs) But I really love the way this episode broke down. So to go back, though, in the prosecutor's episode, the the thing that was kind of interesting to me is they they really put it forth that Adnan went out of his way to be noticed by Coach Sai. There was a lot of importance put onto it. And that's the, you know, as hearing that, that felt important. It felt like, well, if, if he's never talked to Coach Sai, why, you know, why would he go out of his way to make this big conversation to be present if he wasn't trying to make himself known and give himself some sort of alibi? And then in episode 4.5, we learn that Coach Sai is the one that actually started that conversation with Adnan. It wasn't the other way around which is what the prosecutors led you to believe. Interesting, on, on that point, I, I was just checking because I had asked a follow-up question for somebody on the follow-up thread to see, and I was checking to see if they had hit me back. But somebody else, Michelle, uh, on, uh, on her Facebook thread, she was saying that, you know, where I'm saying that the prosecutors are 
twisting and, and manipulating facts. Really, it's just more, I want to say perceptions, but I guess I can read what she actually says. She says are really differences in definition rather than actual fact. And she gives some examples about how, you know, as far as like Adnan and Jay being close friends. I, I think you've got to listen to what's actually being said. So, yeah, my point about that was simply that I find it weird that they're making such a big deal out of something because it can't be proven. It is very subjective. What Zach just said, that's what I'm talking about. When they specifically say Adnan goes to track, they don't tell you that coach said he was on time. They don't tell you the coach said he was stretching and then he walked around the track with him. They do say that Adnan initiated this conversation when the actual case facts show the exact opposite of that. So when I'm so I'm when I'm saying that they're lying and manipulating facts, I mean they're lying. That is as simple as that. I'm not talking about things like subjective stuff, like whether Adnan and Jay are close friends. I just think that's a weird hill to die on. You know the the way they 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 harp on it over and over again. But stuff like this is exactly what I'm talking about. There's no question here. When you read a document and Coach Sai says I initiated the conversation, they read that document and then tell you. Adnan initiated the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's not an accident. Yeah. And and they, again, the episode, they're very charming. I mean, there's still several points in this episode that I can feel like they're leaning towards guilt, but they still feel like they're trying to be unbiased. There's several times where they say, if Adnan did this, we don't know, but if Adnan did this, this looks really bad. You know, so I still feel like they're trying to put that out there that there's, they're still being very unbiased, but this is something that that was a big thing for me was because I thought they had proved that that Adnan had started this conversation. And by saying that to me, that does kind of prove their point of like, well, why would Adnan do that? Why would he make such a big deal out of this if he's never talked to coach and he's never, you know, this is, he's not a star player. So why would coach even know who he was if he wasn't talking to them? I know you can't always go off personal things. I'm calling bullshit on that. I coach a lot of sports and I know every one of my kids, regardless if they're a small, uh, star player or not yeah and besides that part of it what they said is provably false it's in the document that they're referencing in the fact that he never talked to him before it says right in the document he asked him about his kid all the time Mm -hmm. you know that he's a polite kid that they have these conversations all the time so all of that stuff and regarding what you said about them being like charming and trying to come across as unbiased that's one thing that i think is a really interesting experiment for you hearing this stuff who doesn't know the case and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to do the that I felt it was necessary to correct the record here because so many people that don't, just don't know the case super well felt the same way because that is their MO. They continually tell you they're being unbiased. We're just giving you the facts. And I don't know if Adnan's guilty or if he's innocent, but if you know the case thoroughly and you know the case documents thoroughly, you know that they're not at all being unbiased. Like what you, what you just said, I want to keep harping on because we got a lot of ground to cover. But like the, the coach side thing is a perfect example. They're saying, I don't know if he's guilty. I don't know if he did this. But then if you know the case documents and then you hear them quoting coach Sai and then completely twisting and changing his story to fit a guilty narrative, it's very obvious to me when I'm listening because I know what that document says. Oh, they're not being unbiased at all. They're being extremely biased, but they are very good at making you feel like they are, you know, they're shooting it right down the middle. So one of my other points that I've written down, I don't know what story they're going with as far as Jay's stories. And I didn't, honestly, I didn't know until this episode that there's several, like, like seven or eight stories that mm-hmm. Jay comes through. I didn't know that. And I, and I'm sure that you're going to go through this at some point, the different stories. Yeah. But are, are they just using like the most recent of the eight or the one that went to trial? Or I don't, I guess I just don't understand how. How the, this many stories can just slip through the cracks that they're not telling any of this. So at, at this point in the game, they are they're picking and choosing, right? So they're using elements from his p- first police interview to say he did this at this point, and elements from his second police interview to say he did something else at a different point. And then they're you know they're using things that he did. There were, there were other unrecorded police interviews that happened after this later on, where we just have notes from them. And then there's the interview with the, a magazine called The Intercept uh, that happened years later. And then there's the stories that he told all of his friends. So they're like kind of cherry picking parts of them in their defense. In this part, they're giving you just like the basic timeline. Mm-hmm. And so they're just they're trying to piece together and muddle together a timeline. But, but to me, the reason that it's hard to follow all that is because, as I've said over and you heard me say in this episode, 
there isn't a timeline that works. I've, as I said, Jay's story sucks because there isn't a story that works. Yeah. There isn't one. That's why I, it's just hard to follow. And it's hard to even consider how you could see Jay as credible when these stories continue to change, especially you talked about the one where he goes to, they go to Patapsco Park. Is that mm-hmm. how you pronounce it? Yeah. And you're like, well, that, that can't even be, that doesn't fit any narrative whatsoever on anything, but that's still a story that Jay told. So how can you, how can you just say that that's relevant or not relevant? And say, you know, this piece isn't relevant, but the other things he is saying is relevant when we clearly know that that's not happening. So from my perspective, the guilty narrative is always this. Jay lies. That's the excuse. And both sides say it, like Jay lies. Jay, do- Jay obviously lies because if you tell, you know, five different versions of a story, four of them are lies by, de- by definition. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it allows people to use like in every version he tells, they go to Patapsco State Park and they smoke a blunt at the cliffs. In every version, it's impossible for that to have happened. So instead of seeing that as, well, that's a problem, we just say, yeah, but Jay lies, right? And so we move on. And then, and then that's what you get. You, you, you hear, listen, there's a basic story there. You can't get caught up. What, what you'll hear Brett and Al say repeatedly throughout the series is, don't get caught up on the details Jay's giving. There's a basic story there. You can't get caught up on the details because Jay lies. And that's like the out, right? He lies, so it's okay that he says all this stuff. Now, I'm excited for you to get into right now for our patrons. I just did part one of episode nine, which is Jay's first interview. And this week we're doing part two, which is his second recorded interview, where I do a full statement analysis because it's pretty shocking, even for me when I'm going through them this, because I never did a statement analysis on them. I had uh, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards do a statement analysis years ago, and they weren't looking at the types of details I'm looking at now. They were looking for something else. But going through it, I'm realizing, oh, Jay doesn't lie. I mean, he's lying, but when you when you hear it and you hear the break and you hear the cues, I'll give just for those of you that aren't on Patreon that are going to have to wait uh, six or eight weeks to hear those episodes. There are all these indicators that Jay is reacting to a prompt that we're not hearing. So he'll say something, and then he'll go, "Um, oh, okay, I'm sorry," and then say something else. You hear all the time hmm. that he's getting prompted to push something, and then also, you know, there, there's so much stuff where. I don't want to spoil, get too much into it, but there's all these things that we've been saying for years. Well, Jay said this, but when you read the actual transcript, you realize Jay didn't say that. McGillivary said that. Hmm. Jay said thing one. McGillivary says like, yeah, but wasn't it thing two? And Jay goes, yeah. It's almost like Jesse Miss Kelly. He's going right along with what they're saying. So a lot of the information didn't even come from Jay, but then Jay gets pegged as Jay lies. So everything's okay. So. I guess I have two more things before we can move on. One of which is, so you break down the timeline pretty well of the calls and the locations. And it's honestly, it's pretty, it's unfeasible to make this. Mm -hmm. Did anybody ever attempt to do a drive test at this point? So that just seems to floors me that no one would actually try to make these times line up. Well, I was going to say you have to remember, but you're not remembering because this is new information for you. There was a huge issue for the defense going into this case. So Jay gives an interview He's picked up on January 27th at like 1130. It goes into midnight. So his interview is technically the 28th, but it's like from midnight till one in the, two in the morning, whatever. And then they arrest Adnan at six in the morning. Adnan doesn't know why he's being like, he knows he's arrested for the murder, but he doesn't know why or what evidence there is. They go through the grand jury and, and at the grand jury, only Jen testifies at the grand jury. And that testimony, I think, is, is sealed. So then they then they start to build their defense as they're moving towards trial. The state won't tell them who all they told them is that they have a co-conspirator witness that has said Adnan did it. That's all they know. So for months. So this this is in he's arrested in right at the end of February, February 28th, all the way through August. They have no idea who the co-conspirator is. So they don't know what they're defending against. They certainly don't know the route. Then eventually, I think it's in August. The, the defense is saying, we can't put a defense together if you don't tell us who the co-conspirator is and what they said. We don't know what we're defending against. And then the state is like, no, because he'll be in danger if we tell you who he is. Finally, they're forced to, they, they finally let him know the co-conspirator is Jay Wilds, but they won't give them the transcripts or the recordings of the interview. So in August, all they know is Jay's a co-conspirator. Now, if you're in the innocence camp, you then you believe when Adnan's like, I like he's telling us, like, I don't know, I don't, Jay, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So they don't know what they're, what they're trying to defend against. They don't have a timeline. 
They don't know when Hay was killed. They don't know where Hay was supposedly killed. They don't. They know where she's buried because that was public record. That came out in the news that she was buried in Lincoln Park. It's not until the first trial that ends in a mistrial. Just on, I believe, on the very day Jay testified, they got the transcripts of Jay's. Uh, I believe just his first interview or just his set, one of the interviews. Then he testifies. We get a mistrial. That's the first time they have any idea what the hell the state's proposing. But they never got to closing arguments. So now they're looking at like this weird timeline that Jay's given. Nothing's really making sense. So then the second trial comes. Then it all comes out. Jay gives all his testimony. And he does exactly what I've been predicting that people will do now is once you realize that Jay's story is impossible, they'll create a narrative that doesn't involve Jay at all. But it's still Jay centric, which is a weird thing. That's the only way to try to make something work. And that's what the prosecutor, Kevin Urich, did. So, So for example... Jay testifies that at 3.45, Adnan called him to come get him. And then in closing arguments, Yurik says, so at 2.36, Adnan calls Jay to come get him. It's not based on any evidence at all, right? But so as far as the drive time goes, the defense never had the information they would have needed to try to do a drive time before it, before it came up. Now, since then, a lot of people have done drives to figure things out. Like I've personally been to Baltimore and like, how long does it take to get from Woodlawn to the park and ride from the park and ride to Lincoln Park from Christie's. You know, I've, I've made those drives. I've walked from the library to the school and so on and so forth. I've, I've done all those things. Um, but I don't think anybody's really ever pieced it together in the way that we're doing. Okay. Uh, and last thing before we move on in the episode, you say that we know that they weren't at Christie's house that night because Christie had a college class and she wouldn't have got an A in the class if she wasn't at class that night. Do we have any proof of that. Yeah. So that's something, as I mentioned there, this is going to come up later. But this is some work that the Undisclosed podcast did. So first of all, so in one of Jay's stories, there becomes two trips to Jeff and Christie's. One of them we know for sure. The early one is impossible. Like I think she was at work. Like she, she wasn't home. Couldn't have been home. And that and, and it was and the cell phone records prove that he could have been there. That was based on a mistake that the police made in their mapping. But then the then later that night when they go there, so Christie says she tells the police she testifies at trial. She doesn't know that the night Adnan was there. And he was high and they were acting weird. She doesn't know that was January 13th. She only knows it's January 13th because the police said, based on these phone calls, we know it's January 13th. So she's assuming, like, I don't think Christy's being dishonest at all. I think I think she remembers what happened. She doesn't remember. It was months later, right? So she doesn't remember the day it happened. Well, what Undisclosed did was they figured they, they got Christy's class schedule as part of their, their research. And they find out that that semester... She was in a course that only met three times. It was like a correspondence class. She had to go to class three times. And something I suddenly believe, like, by the syllabus of the course, like, in order to pass the class, it was mandatory to be at all three. She got an A or a B or whatever. whatever. I think I said A in the episode. I, I'm not positive that's right, but, but she got a good grade, an A or B. She passed the class with, with a good grade. And when she was presented with that, she said, that's not right. She said, no, I, she said, first of all, I would have never missed that class. And second of all, if I had missed that class, I wouldn't have passed, which confirmed what they already knew from like the syllabus and stuff like that. So that's all stuff. This all came out 20 years later. They figured out besides the fact that it, nothing made sense around this whole Christie trip. Once they pieced together the fact that, you know, th- there's documentation to prove she wasn't home on January 13th, 1999. Well, I've kind of get into the details now, but that's something we're going to get into details later. But that's why, you know, in this episode, just kind of touched on the fact that like, Christy went home. But besides that, there's these uh, these other issues. Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? It can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses, and it's just nasty. So this episode has drummed up a bunch of questions and a couple comments. So we're going to go ahead and jump into those if you're ready. Okay. So Kay says, Bob, I'm so glad you're doing these reply briefs because Alice and Brett's behavior is incredibly irresponsible and reckless. However, I'm frustrated that you even have to do them in the first place. You could be spending time investigating other cases or spending more time with your family. I think it goes to show what a great, compassionate human you are and how dedicated you truly are in the quest to find truth and justice. We love you, Bob. Well, thank you. And that's obviously one that Janet put in there before she <laughs> she wasn't coming. Uh, all right. Yeah. Thank you for that. And what's the, what's the next one? Jennifer says, because the police coach Jay in a lot of these interviews say certain things. So they line up with cell phone pings, specific certain streets and landmarks to make the narrative sound less contrived. 
I have to think at some point the police didn't really believe Adnan murdered Hay or didn't care whether he did or not. They wanted to arrest someone and, and get him convicted. Why else would they have taped the map and reminded Jay of his story? What do you think? What do you all think? So we talked a little bit about this last week that, you know, I think that when, at least for Jay's first interview, that Ritz McGillivary thought Adnan was probably guilty. I think Jen believed what Jay told her. I don't think there was this huge, broad conspiracy. I think they really thought that he was guilty. This week, I've been breaking down and doing a statement analysis from Jay's second interview. And when you hear that, patrons, which will be this Sunday, I'm convinced at this point that by the time they did the second interview, that they knew Adnan was innocent. There are many, many tells in that episode, in that interview, excuse me, that they knew at that point they had the wrong guy. That's my opinion, but I think it, it, it's, it's hard to argue when you hear the breakdown of the things that McGillivary is saying and the narratives that he's pushing during that interview as a little nugget, little, a little teaser. Adnan was on the indoor track team. On this one day, they practiced outside, but usually they practiced inside. At the time of Jay's second interview, they hadn't talked to Coach Sai yet. They hadn't realized, Ritz and McGillivary had not realized that practice was outside that day. And that becomes very apparent, one, that when Jay talks about the drop-off, that he's not remembering something he actually did. And two, it's very clear that information was being pushed on him by Ritz and McGillivary. And it's very clear they did not know track was outside, so they were creating a narrative where Adnan went back to track for his alibi. For those that say that, well, Jay said that they, he went back to get read the transcript. That's not true. Jay didn't say that. McGillivary said that, as is the case with many things in that interview. He says it. Jay agrees with it. Lynn says, I keep learning new facts about this case. I didn't know Hayes' brother thought he called Don the night she went missing. When he found Adnan's number in the diary, this ties into the anonymous call to the police that we haven't covered yet. So why was Adnan a better fit for the police? Was it only because Jay was arrested for another crime and pointed to Adnan? So here's the thing. They didn't have any evidence against Adnan or Jay. And, and so I, I think what you're saying is there. So when Young thought he was calling Don, he actually called Adnan. Yeah, which I, I found that interesting as well. Yeah. Well, and, and it's because he looked through a diary. And there's a page that says Don, 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 Don. And there's a phone number calls that. But that was Adnan's phone number. He had called her that night. So then there's an anonymous call that comes in later that says to look at look at Adnan. So that's kind of what triggers them to go that direction. But the problem that they have is there's no evidence against Adnan or against Jay. None whatsoever. There's no way to build a case. But these two detectives have a track record, as I've mentioned on multiple occasions. They've been caught on four different times. Four different convictions have been exonerated because it was proved that they did exactly that. The one was slightly different, but just as bad. And then three of them were exactly this. When they have a case to clear and they don't have any evidence, what they need is a witness. The way they get a witness is they use leverage on somebody. In those instances, it was you know people that have been caught with drugs. They're people of color in Baltimore. They're caught with drugs. They lean on them. They leverage them. They threaten them. And then they convince them to say that they saw someone else do it. And then boom, now you have evidence. So once they, they couldn't just go after Jay, because what evidence do they have that Jay did this? None, right? Like the call records mean nothing. Where the car is at means nothing. The only reason the call records mean anything at all is because Jay gave a story that seems to line up with the call records that corroborates the story he's telling. But, but as we know, it doesn't actually corroborate them. The, the call records actually conflict his story. But that's everybody leans on these calls. The call records prove nothing. The only evidence against Adnan is what Jay says happened. Imagine if they just went after Jay. What evidence did they have? Absolutely nothing. If they just went after Adnan, what evidence do they have? Without Jay, nothing. Nothing. So what they need is to have a witness say that they saw somebody else or they have information that somebody else did it. And Jay is their usual suspect right? Black kid, in Jay's own words, what he said during the HBO documentary was that they, he says they caught him with a bunch of weed and were threatening him. So that's why they wouldn't just go after Jay because they couldn't, they didn't have anything on Jay unless they could get Adnan to flip on Jay, but he doesn't fit their profile for people they get to flip on people. 
so strange that they just happen to catch Adnan's friend and then for and then have him say that Adnan did it. Yeah, like, well, it's very strange to me. Well, and it's it, th- there's a process there. So their story is they go to Jen and Jen just confesses to everything. How do they get to Jen? Exactly. <laughs> so that okay. so it doesn't make sense, right? So they say they got the so they get the anonymous call that says to check it to go to look into Adnan. So then they pull his phone records, they do all this stuff. They're 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 honing in on Adnan. The first call on the log that day is a call to Jay. They say, but we didn't go to Jay. We went to Jen. Somehow, the, the phone number is registered to Anthony Pusateri, who has two kids, Mark and Jennifer, who are both Jay's friend. According to Jen and Christy, who was with her, when the police come up to her, they come up to her door and say, are you Jennifer Pusateri? Well, how did they know they were looking for Jennifer if all they had was a phone number registered to Anthony, right? But, but they claim they skipped Jay for some reason. Went straight to her. Now, my, I mean, we get into all this later, but I mean, Jay himself says they had been questioning him a d- bunch of times before this. They say they hadn't. So it looks on paper like, well, we just went to a phone number and the first person we talked to was Jen. And she's like, yep. Actually, first she says, I don't know anything. Then the next day she's like, yep, my friend Jay helped him do it. And then they go to Jay and then Jay tells them the story. In reality, uh, the evidence is pretty clear to indicate that they went to the first call on the log, which was Jay. Probably what happened, what he says happened, which is they caught him with a bunch of weed and they start leaning on him. They start threatening him with the murder. And he's like, whoa, I didn't do it. And they're like, well, if you didn't do it, then it must have been Adnan. As a matter of fact, it was Adnan. He did it. So how how does Jay get a, like, did Jay get some sort of immunity or like, how does Jay get away? Like, I don't understand this. And I'm sure I'm, I know that everybody's like screaming at me because I should know this. It's by not now, because those are great questions. I'm laughing because you're asking real normal questions people should ask. So what Jay says is that Adnan told him he was going to murder Hay the day before and needed his help. And so he helped him, which means, number one, he's an accessory to this murder. Number two, he could have stopped Hay from being murdered by his own story. Then he helps bury the body, helps conceal the murder, which is accessory after the fact. I mean, he's facing a lot of prison time and then doesn't, you know, keeps it quiet the whole time she's missing after her body's found, keeps it quiet until he gets forced into a confession, right? Facing a lot and no immunity, didn't have a lawyer when he said any of it. Man, he should have, he should have been sent up the river, right? Just like you're thinking. Yeah. And it was made to appear that way. So he was charged before Adnan's trial. At trial, said, nope, he didn't get any kind of deal. The jury was led to believe Jay was going to prison, which made him more believable. Like he told this story, even though it's it's costing him going to prison. Then after the trial, Jay, he'd already entered his plea of guilty, but he hadn't been sentenced. After the trial, he goes to be sentenced and, uh, you know, the, the recommendation is made. They put him in a court with a judge that is that is has a reputation for being lenient on young folks, particularly who says, you know what? You did a horrible thing, but I see you're remorseful. and eventually you did the right thing and the reason Adnan got convicted was because of you so I'm giving you probate he gave him like a suspended sentence he never served any jail time so so Jay never Jay never served any jail time for this I don't understand it I just don't what the hell okay back to back to the listener questions Burns says about the butt dial did Adnan have his phone long enough to actually already program some numbers in it seems it was not an important item to him as it was left in his car and allowed someone to use it at will it seems like an important item to him. And why would he leave it there if every minute you use it, it's charged? And just leave it for Jay to use. Uh, first of all, th- the first part, did he have it for long enough to program a number in his phone? When I got that exact phone, the very first thing I did was read the instruction manual. I'm like, cool, look, I'm going to program these numbers in. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a subjective thing, right? I can say, yeah, I would do it immediately. You might say, I wouldn't do it for months. Who knows? But was there enough time? Yes, 100%. There easily was. Whether he did or not, who knows? As far as him giving the phone, so keep in mind, Adnan has never said he left Jay his phone. Nowadays, kids carry their phones into school. That's normal. Go back even 10 years ago, you know, when there's smartphones, all this stuff's going on. Most kids were not allowed to have their their phones in school. They had to be, as a matter of fact, uh, my daughter's school at one point a couple of years ago had a policy that phones had to be shut off and left. I think they had to be left in their cars or in their locker or whatever, but they were not, like, it was like an automatic suspension if their phones were out during school. Yeah, we were not supposed to have them in the building at all. Right. Um, and so this is all the way back in 1999. So what Adnan has always said was he let Jay use his car, but the phone he just left in his glove box. And then Jay must have just grabbed it and started using it. Jay says Adnan gave him the phone for what purpose? So that he could call him after he murdered Hay. 
interestingly enough, you'll hear in this week's episode that his ultimate story he lands on was that Adnan didn't call him on the cell phone. You can't, you almost, you almost can't make it up. But so anyway, uh, in that regards, again, Adnan never said that he let him use his. So, so that that's just a matter of who you believe. If you believe Jay's stories and you think that Adnan is guilty and he did this, then you'd believe Jay that he said, here's the phone. I'm going to call you on it. If you believe Adnan is innocent, then you believe that, you know, he, he never said he never told Jay use my phone. He just left his phone in his car because that's what you did. You weren't allowed to have him in the school. So just keep that in mind that there's I'm not saying which side you got to land on, but there's definitely two sides there. So Brian has a point that kind of just brings up what we talked about before about the differences in the episodes. And uh, he brings up a point that he says he feels is very misleading that was brought up in the prosecutors. And he says it was definitely easier for cell phones to be more precise and densely populated in more cell towers. More cell towers means more points of contact to show precise location. I think he's saying that I was being misleading. Oh, that you were being misleading. I put that one in there. Yeah. Okay. Then you are misleading. Yeah. He, what Brian is saying, if I, and I guess it'll correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read that and I put it in there for you, it was him saying that it was actually me that was being misleading. Okay. You were right. Cause you did say that in the episode. Yep. That it's actually less, it's less reliable or less, you have less of an ability to track somebody's location in a more densely populated area. It's not misleading. This is what I mean. Yeah, there's towers everywhere. They're all overlapping. So you can be at any place and you can connect to any tower. If you have enough, you have full sector data where you can see the originating tower, the originating cell face, the final cell face, where the switches happen. Yeah, you can track where you're moving through the system. What I meant is when you have a tower that covers a 120 degree arc in a two to three mile range in a densely populated city, you're covering a huge, I mean, very massive area. So you could be on this side of town at the 7-Eleven and connect to that tower, or you could be all the way on the other side of town at, at the Piggly Wiggly and connect to the same tower because it covers, you know, one sector will cover hundreds of houses, dozens of businesses, dozens of streets and neighborhoods because everything is so tightly compact. So by connecting to that tower, it's not like you can say, well, yeah, he's probably in this house because that one tower probably in most cases will cover like, yeah, that that tower actually covers every house that we're talking about because everything. So that's what I meant when everything's so densely populated, as opposed to a very rural environment like we had in Pinion Pines in season 12, where you connected to this tower, sector A, well, that tower covers a huge rural area that has one highway that runs through it. So you can rest assured that that person was on that road at that time because there's nothing else there. You can narrow down the area where the, you know, the actual location they were because it's less densely populated. And also the towers aren't all overlapping. So it's very clear to see, you know, we went through this in Penny Pines, right? So when they're traveling, they hit this sector, then this sector, then this sector. So you can see they're traveling from here to here to here. But in this densely populated area, there's four sectors all overlapping. So even if there was a bunch of switching happening, like we saw in like Pinion Pines for, you know, the, from an initial cell face to a final cell face, the switch could be from one to the other. And those two sectors are completely overlapping each other. So it doesn't like you don't get any more information from that. That's what I meant. So I, I wonder if he's just basically saying that even though it's like because it doesn't project as far, like it only projects three miles. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he's alluding to like we know for sure that, that at least he's in this three mile area rather than 15 miles away. Yeah, I, th- I think, I don't fault him for the question, but I think what, what I'm getting at is, practically speaking, it doesn't help you narrow anything down because there's too much in the coverage area, in a densely populated area. Jennifer says, listening since Serial Dynasty and appreciate your ongoing coverage. I wonder if you could address slash remind that Jen's attorney was arranged by Ritz and McGee and was one of their neighbors. You mentioned the guilty camp would say Jen wouldn't implicate herself in front of the attorney, but if he was buddies with the police, it didn't seem like a stretch to me. Yeah, I didn't mention that. I don't mention it in the episode when I cover Jen's interview because it is speculation. So this, so what we know is the attorney that Jen had through background checks, people have figured out that he was neighbors or lived a couple doors down from one of the detectives. That's what we know. From that, people have then speculated he must have been, I, don't, I think it was McGillivary, it might have been Ritz, I'm not sure, but say McGillivary. He must have been McGillivary's buddy. McGillivary must have arranged him 
to be the lawyer. That's why they met at his house, at the lawyer's house. I have no idea if that happens. So, so that's why I'm not real. I'm, I'm trying to stick to the facts. Th- those are, I'm not saying that's impossible, but we don't have any evidence to support that. What we have is Jen saying she told her mother she wanted to talk to police about this and tell them what happened. And her mother hired an attorney. That's what we know. So that thing you're talking about is not proven fact. It's a theory. She also asked if you've considered going on True Crime Garage to set the record straight. Yeah, I would if they asked me. I'd be happy to do that. I haven't, I've, I've actually talked to Captain quite a bit because he's got a case that he wants me to look at for him. But we haven't talked about that. So, yeah, if I'm invited, I would be happy to do that. Emily asks, would there have been a way in 1999 to get phone records that had the actual phone numbers for the incoming calls? I feel like so much would be cleared up if we could see those numbers. I mean, the police can't even identify which incoming calls is theirs from that freaking day. I, I don't think I've, I've had a case from this time frame with, with cell phones, but I know like Pinion Pines wasn't that far. It was 2006. So it's seven years later. And in that case, we show, we have, I, I think what it was is they didn't pull, because the other thing we don't have, we have the sector, the originating sector, but that's all we have for these calls. So I think what they didn't do is pull the next level of reports. Remember the Pinion Pines case, we just, at first, we only had the call numbers and the originating cell face uh, sector. Then they pulled, which was the thing that they said they didn't have that they did have, the full call detail report that showed the call came from this number, it connected to this number, this was the initial cell face, this was the final cell face, this is how many switches happened during the duration of the call. So I, I think that there must, they, they would have needed to pull the next level of records in order to get that. But, but kind of par for the course in this case is once they had a story on the record from Jay, again, I, I'm on record saying I believe they knew at that point that Adnan actually didn't do it. I fully believe that. And, and we'll see what you think after you get through episode nine of the Patreon of the series once it gets on the main feed. So in that, that's why we have all these questions, right? So like Jen says that she told this other friend, gives the name of this other friend. She talked to this person about the murder before the body was found. They never go interview her. Jay says he tells this guy, Chris Bakersfield, about the murder before the body was found or before he was interviewed. Gives him the phone number and everything. They never go interview him. Same thing with these phone records. So they have a phone log. They get Jay to tell a story that matches the phone log. But you know what they don't want to find out? When Jay says that it was Jen calling during the burial, when the towers ping in Lincoln Park, what they don't want to find out that that was Adnan's mom calling, right? So they, so they, they're not going to put their, so I don't know if there were record, if they could have got those records, but I'm assuming that they absolutely could have, but the last thing they wanted in this case was more information. Joe has a few questions here. So Joe's first question is, he has some issues with the Nisha call that he'd like to address. Bobby said that if the Nisha call was supposed to be Adnan's alibi, then why didn't he present it as the call to his alibi? Says he thinks you're missing the point. Nisha was going to be the alibi, but since Jay snitched on him, he had to change it that he never left school. I don't know that. I don't know that it was going to be an alibi. I broke those down, so I know the next question kind of jumps off of that. Okay, so based on the fence notes, where the Nisha call is mentioned, it seems like Adnan did actually present the Nisha call, and it's acknowledged that the call happened on the day of the murder. Yeah, so in the defense notes that we read, um, that's an episode you haven't heard yet. So yeah, we're kind of jumping ahead here. But yeah, in the, de- the defense notes in the where they think that Ali is Adnan's brother when Ali's actually a law clerk, it says that Ali says that Adnan called Nisha that day. They had the phone records. Like, like you're assuming that well, Adnan must have told them he called Nisha that day. We don't, again, we don't know that. We know they had the phone records. So they saw the call. They know they, they had the call there. So that information could have just come from there as well. And, and, I'll, and I'll back up too and say, and, and Joe did acknowledge this in his post. I just, it was too much. It was too long for me to put it all in there for you. Let's not forget when we're going through these, de- the things we're going to be discussing here that you're asking about, they're, they're subjective. Like what we think certain things might mean. But what we got to do is back up and point out that it's impossible. Like, like if you just literally could not have happened, you cannot give me a scenario based on the call locations and the call times where that call was Jay and Adnan together. It's not possible. 
So kind of to me, it becomes kind of moot when we're talking about what we think might have happened in certain situations. So so something you brought up that I just learned in this episode is they talk about Nisha being the alibi, but but Edna never presented it. And the listener asked, well, he didn't present it or states they didn't present it because he was snitched on. So he has to change his story. But we learned that he doesn't know who snitched on him, quote unquote. Another good point. So why would you not present that alibi if you don't even know that at that point? Well, you got to remember that if you believe Adnan is guilty, but therefore believe Jay is telling some version of the truth, and therefore you would believe that Adnan knows it's Jay. Exactly. So, so if Adnan was guilty, even though the defense didn't know it was Jay, even though he never told the defense it was Jay, Adnan would have known it was Jay. So that's where that that bit kind of falls apart. But it still seems like if he knew it was Jay, he knew that he left school regardless of the murder, if they committed the murder or not. So why would you change your story to you never left school? Why would you try to change your story to, yeah, I was with Jay, but we went to the mall and then we came back and I called Nisha. Yeah, you'd expect. But but the other thing is people say Adnan changed his story till you never left school. Adnan never changed his story to that. Adnan never said that. All Adnan has ever said is, I don't know. I don't remember that day. I would have probably maybe checked my email. I would have, I've learned, you know, he's learned since that he had track practice, but his story, whether he's acting, depending on your perspective, if he's acting or telling the truth, you know, he wasn't questioned about as a suspect about this for six weeks. And he doesn't remember what he was doing, you know, after school that day. To my knowledge, he's never said, no, that's not true. I never left school. Another one from Joe. Since Jay worked the night shift, it seems odd that Nisha would have originally recalled the call happening at four or five in the afternoon. Here's the thing, and I, I bring this up in later episodes. In, whether you think Adnan's innocent or guilty, most people, even Brett and Alice, agree that some of the stuff that Ritz and McGillivray done was shady. Like they're, they, they did things they should not have done. They cut corners and they did things they shouldn't do. So because of that, and because of all the things we've exposed, and Susan, Robbie, and Colin have all exposed from them. What I want to hear is people speaking in their own words. So what we have from Nisha is we have interview notes written by the detective where they wrote that it was four or five in the afternoon. But we Nisha is one of the few people where we actually get to hear from her out of her own mouth. She testifies. And when she testifies, she says it would have been in the evening time. Again, she's interviewed months after the fact. So maybe she thought at the time four or five. She hadn't had time to think about it, right? These guys come knock on her door and they're like, hey, do you remember this call? So maybe she said four or five. We don't know. But what we do know is when she did have time to think about it and she testified about it in her own words, she said it was the evening time. And then let's not forget, you know, dates and times. I've always said this and even Brett and Alice agree with this. You don't expect people to get dates and times right. People aren't looking at their watch. They're not documenting what time things happened. Certainly for Nisha, that was a normal day. Right. So she's not going to remember exactly what happened that day. What people remember are experiences. And what she remembers is that one single time ever in her entire life, she spoke with Jay was when she was talking to Adnan. He was going into an adult video store where Jay worked and he put Jay on the phone. Now, for you to believe she's wrong about that, she's a state's witness. She's not a defense witness. She's a, she's, she was prepped by the prosecution for her testimony. So this comes back to what I was saying earlier about just creating your own narrative rather than the evidence. So what are we saying here? She misremembered, but happened to get right exactly where Jay worked the one time they talked and it was in the evening. Or is she part of the big grand conspiracy now? Is she intentionally lying to try to help Adnan, except for Adnan's attorney didn't catch on to it and didn't capitalize on it. So it doesn't seem like that information came from his attorney. Because as soon as she said that, she'd have been like, well, if you only talked to Jay after he worked at the video store, Jay didn't work at the video store until January 31st. But they didn't do that because they didn't know that they weren't. They missed it. So so you, if you're trying to balance with me in one interview note by a detective who said that she said that it was at four or five o'clock. So let's say it had to have been four or five o'clock. And then we're going to disregard what the words we heard come out of her own mouth where she said it was in the evening. It was only one time. And it was when Jay worked at the adult video store and we're going to disregard all of the actual scientific evidence that the call was impossible to be Jay and Adnan together based on cell tower locations and drive times. I get where you're coming from and I, and I appreciate the fact that you are 
like trying to dig in and really understand it, but I can't get behind it. I can't, I can't disregard all that. So the last one of Joe's is Jay independently said that he talked to a girl from Silver Springs in his second interview. This seems like an independent memory, therefore doesn't seem like police coercion. Did he though? I, don't ask me. I'm yeah. learning from you. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to spoil too much, but this Sunday's Patreon episode, which if you, if you're not on Patreon, you'll hear in a little while when I go through Jay's interview. This has been a great exercise for me because, again, I'm looking at details that I had never paid attention to before, and you realize how many things are attributed to Jay that didn't actually come from Jay that were prompted and forced and wedged in by the officers. And if, by the way, if Jay didn't know who Nisha was and Jay didn't even know Nisha's name, isn't it interesting that he knows where she lives, especially when it's easy to know where she lives just by looking at the phone number? Rena's curious if you have thoughts about where Hay might have changed her skirt. Um, if we believe Inez's statement that Hay had a short skirt on and was later found with a long skirt, that would have mean Hay would have had to stop somewhere to change. Someone in the group a few months ago posted a map showing Hay's most likely route to pick up her cousin. It was about one block away from Mr. S's house. Isn't that reasonable to think that Hay may have pulled over on that street to change her skirt? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's reasonable. I don't, I don't know. Like, I never considered that until someone brought it up, like, as you mentioned a few weeks ago. That, well, if Inez got everything right, except for the fact she said she was wearing a short skirt, but then she's found in a long skirt, but there's a short skirt found in her car that as far as I can go with that is, yeah, it seems reasonable that she might have stopped to change out of her skirt somewhere. Where, how, when, if, you know, I, I don't know, but that would certainly open the door to her not meeting someone she knew somewhere, but rather being abducted somewhere. So our last question is from Beska, and I will actually piggyback on this because I feel exactly the same way is that she says, they say that I'm definitely looking forward to hearing a person who thinks Adnan is guilty lay out exactly what they think happened and when. I am too. I'm, I'm really waiting for, for that exact thing. And, and so th keep in mind, you're hearing this episode now. It went out to thousands of people on Patreon and there was a lot of the guilty crowd were all over Twitter when this, these episodes first came out. And all I got was personal attacks and ad hominem attacks, but no one has been able to step up to the challenge and lay out us. And, 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 and I maintain my promise. If someone can sit down and say, this is how it happened here, here, and here, all based on the actual evidence, I will either read through that on the podcast, or if you want to, I'll have you on and you can come on and explain it. But so far, I have yet to see it. I maintain it's impossible to take the actual cell records and all the actual evidence and come up with any scenario where Adnan's guilty. I am staying very, I'm trying to stay very open-minded and, and pick up as much as I can. And I continue to wait for the piece of evidence or the piece of the pie that comes together that goes, oh, there's why people think he's guilty. You know, I, I haven't seen it yet. So I'm, I'm really curious to see it as well. Well, that, that thing is that a guy said that he helped him bury the body. Right. I mean, that's a pretty, I mean, to be fair, that's a pretty big thing. But from when I've learned about it already. Right. It doesn't hold up. So that I, that it seems like everybody else should, I don't, I don't know. It just seems weird to me that there's not something else that people, these, this guilty party has that they need to show to prove that Adnan's guilty. Yep. I get it. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. That was our last question, Bob. Awesome. Well, then with that, we'll go ahead and we're going to wrap this thing up. So coming up this week, we have. Gosh, I don't remember what part five is about. I think it's I think it's where they begin the investigation, but that's what's coming up on the main feed this week. It is over uh, part five of the prosecutors podcast on the main feed on Patreon. You're getting part nine point five where I'm doing uh, a full statement analysis on Jay's second recorded police interview, which is I wasn't expecting this. I thought it was something I was going to breeze through because it's stuff we kind of already knew. But when you get past looking at the big picture and dig into the details, it is the most telling episode, I think, that I've, I've done so far. I'm really excited for you guys all to hear it on Patreon this Sunday. And for those of you on the main feed, you are going to get to hear it, too. It's just going to be a little while before that comes up. Also, to our patrons, keep your eye open. We're, I'm, I'm kind of holding back until we have some, some down weeks, but uh, I have started to get stuff back in from ObsessFest. So uh, as bonus content for our patrons, you will have coming up the Web of Death panel where, that we did with Ed and Kim Eights. The How to Prove Adnan is Innocent in 30 Minutes or Less panel. And I just got today, that'll be just a fun one for you guys. I just got the uh, full video of, of Zach and I's comedy hour from Obsessed Fest. So all the three of those are going to be posted as bonus content on 
Patreon at the $5 a month level. So that stuff's all coming up. And with that, I think that we can go ahead and wrap this thing up. Thank you guys for joining. Thanks for all of you that are here on YouTube watching us live and interacting. And thanks, everybody, for subscribing. We really appreciate you. We love you guys. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible if you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com just click on the case submission button and fill out the form and the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations you can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can like our facebook page follow us on instagram or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. Today, Bob and Janet, or God, Bob and Janet, that's not right. Bob's not here. This Janet's is going well. This is going amazing, swimmingly. I'm so sorry, Brandon. I forgot how to do this. <laughs>